I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit about myself, my background, where I come from. I grew up as a Unitarian in West Central Illinois, in Quincy, Illinois, a town on the banks of the Mississippi River that had a Unitarian church that was founded there in 1839. I'm of the third generation of the family that was uh, in that, uh, my family in that congregation, uh, generations that today extend to five. Back in the early 1800s, when that church was founded, it would have been seen as a liberal Christian congregation representing the Unitarian values of that era, uh, the most important of which were freedom of belief, the validity of reason and religion, and an emphasis on human values. But in the second half of the 19th century, something began to happen among Unitarian churches of the West, and West meant uh, anything west of New York State. What happened is these congregations became humanistic. They focused more on ethical principles than on matters of belief, promoting religion as an individual search for truth rather than a shared faith. That is to say, they participated in a religious ferment that occurred in this country in the late 19th century that had many other expressions, including the establishment of the ethical culture movement. By the time my grandparents joined that church in the 1930s, it was a humanist congregation no longer considering itself Christian. And so that's the Unitarianism in which I was raised, humanistic in style and in message. As you know, there is a variety of beliefs contained within the congregations that are affiliated with the Unitarian Universalist Association. To demonstrate that, all we need to do is travel down 16th Street from the Ethical Society to All Souls to the Universalist National Memorial Church. This diversity is created by our individual freedom of belief, but what I think holds it together is a shared language. The language we share is the language of religious humanism. That is, among the varieties of belief found in our UUA, we come together seeing the purpose of our congregations as to help the human condition, to help address the human condition, the pain and the possibilities of being human. When my wife and I moved to Washington about three and a half years ago, I knew that there was a strong Unitarian Universalist president presence in this region, but I didn't know much more about it. I had previously produced a book for Arcadia Press in their Images of America series, which features photo histories of American communities. I thought it would be interesting to do a book for that series on the history of Unitarianism and Universalism in Washington. So I spent a lot of time in closets and basements and attics, pawing through scrapbooks and boxes in search of photos, including archives you have right here. I also made my way through files at the Unitarian Universalist Association headquarters in Boston and at Harvard University, which is the official repository for Unitarian and Universalist history. What resulted is the book that I'll be sharing some parts of today, Unitarian Universalist and Universalist of Washington, D.C. That said, this is the cover of the finished product. Now, we, we kind of bet against having sun in February. Who would have thought? So we got, a little bit of, <laughs> we got a little bit of competition here. Other than this first photo, they're all in black and white. But if you need to move around to see a little bit better, uh, please, please do so. This is the cover of the book. It shows the All Souls uh, Sunday School in 1929. In, uh, 1929, the Sunday School at All Souls Church was the largest of any Unitarian church in the country. The publisher liked this photo for the 
uh, book's cover, but to make it fit, the picture had to be trimmed. The original is right here. There we go. <laughs> I'm, to I'm told these photos, th these photos were taken um, with a camera that went like this and kind of gradually panned around. And so in some of these, you'll see the same people on one end as on the other end. <laughs> Not in this one, but I've seen it. <laughs> For those of you who know the All Souls building, this was taken by the front entrance on the front steps. And at the time it was taken, the building was five years old. The beginnings of Unitarianism in Washington can be traced back to 1815 when a group of English Unitarians met in members' homes in Georgetown. But a congregation was not organized until 1821. What we have here are minutes of a meeting held in 1820, which states the intent of participants to create a Unitarian church. Remarkably, this document still exists. It's in a file folder at the archives room at All Souls Church. The actual organizational meeting was held in 1821, and the name chosen was First Unitarian Church of Washington. This is a portrait of Robert Little. Robert Little was the congregation's first minister. He was an English Unitarian minister who had come to this country to escape restrictions imposed upon those not of the Church of England. His intent in coming to this country was to establish himself in a retail trade, but he was soon called into service of the fledgling Washington congregation. Robert Little expressed, uh, established himself as an eloquent speaker who argued for the right of each individual to make his or her own judgments on matters of faith. As was the practice of Unitarians of that era, he sought to apply the test of reason to religious claims. Unitarians were well represented among statesmen during Washington's early years. This is Edward Everett, a Unitarian minister, also a congressman from Massachusetts, a senator, and he was appointed by uh, Secretary of State by President Millard Fillmore, who was Unitarian, upon the death of Daniel Webster, who was Unitarian. Here we have an odd couple. <laughs> on our left, we have John Quincy Adams. John C. Calhoun is on the right. When John Quincy Adams was elected President of the United States, the runner-up was Calhoun. According to the practices of that time, the person who came in second became vice president. Adams and Calhoun were political rivals and dis disagreed on just about everything, including slavery. Adams was a staunch opponent of slavery. Calhoun was a defender. About the only thing they had in common was that both were founding members of First Unitarian Church of Washington. Diversity has been part of who we are since the beginnings. <laughs> Charles Bullfinch, the architect who designed the Massachusetts State House, came to Washington to oversee completion of the US Capitol building, which had been severely damaged during the War of 1812. In Boston, the Bullfinches were Unitarians, and so the family was supportive of efforts to establish a Unitarian church in Washington. He became the architect for the congregation's first building, located at 6th and D Streets, just north of Pennsylvania Avenue. The building was dedicated in 1822, with more than 400 people attending. If you know today where the museum is, that's near where this church was. 
Charles Fulfinch, Fulfinch contacted Joseph Revere, son of Paul Revere, to cast a bell for the new church's tower. A serious fire had threatened Washington the year before, so there was a desire for a bell, not just to announce church services, but to warn of dangers in the community. President James Monroe made a substantial contribution with the understanding that the bell would also serve as a warning. We have a letter from Joseph Revere offering to cast such a bell and guaranteeing it for one year. <laughs> Today that bell is 187 years old. It's in its third building and it continues to ring for human rights causes. This is Stephen Bullfinch, son of the architect Charles Bullfinch. He went into the ministry and became fourth minister of First Unitarian Church of Washington. While serving the Washington Church, he invited Lucretia Mott, the Quaker feminist and reformer, to speak from the pulpit of his congregation, which was a daring move for the time. The appearance of Lucretia Mott at First Unitarian Church created a stir. It wasn't just that she was a woman, she also advocated causes that were not of the mainstream. Women's rights, abolition of slavery, peace, and temperance. Her sermon was described, transcribed by one in attendance that day and then published in this pamphlet. On the back, which is impossible to read up here, but what it says is that the sermon attracted many local and national leaders. He called it a large and promiscuous crowd. I believe that the meaning of the word promiscuous was a little different then. <laughs> Slavery divided Washington Unitarians as it did the rest of the country. Despite its divisions, the congregation called an outspoken abolitionist to be its minister in 1854. Moncure Conway was a southerner from a Methodist slave-owning family who became a Unitarian. His passionate opposition to slavery distressed the more genteel congregation. He recalled that after a particularly strong sermon, quote, the choir did not sing, unquote. <laughs> and the church dismissed him. This is William Henry Channing, whose words we started with today. He was a nephew of the early Unitarian leader and was a minister who also fiercely opposed slavery, but was less confrontational. He was called to First Unitarian Church in 1861 and guided the congregation through the Civil War, offering the church building as a hospital. In return, the congregation was allowed to use the Senate chamber for Sunday worship. Clara Barton grew up in a Universalist family. Throughout the Civil War, she volunteered on the battlefield where she brought supplies for soldiers and nursed the wounded and sick. Later, she founded the American Red Cross and personally supervised humanitarian aid. This building is the first headquarters of the American Red Cross on Vermont Street in Washington. In 1877, First Unitarian Church of Washington reorganized under a new name, All Souls Church. The reasons are not clear to me, but the new name had something to do with seeking to be more inclusive. It sought to be a congregation for all souls. A new building was constructed on 14th and L Streets and dedicated in 1877. 
Washington Unitarians in the late 19th century viewed themselves as promoting a reasoned and reasonable faith. It was an age of skepticism about religious claims. Unitarians offered a faith that removed elements difficult to reconcile to the modern mind. The message they sought to convey was that one could be both religious and rational, that the two were not mutually exclusive. This is supposed to be the story of Unitarians and Universalists in Washington, but we haven't gotten really to the Universalists yet. You might be wondering, where were they all this time? Well, the Universalists had a hard time getting a church going in Washington. In the pre- and post-Civil War times, several attempts were made, but they did not stick. The natural constituencies of the Universalists were in small towns of the Northeast and the Midwest. Washington was beyond their territory. It was not until 1883 that the Universalists built their first church in Washington. This building was located at 13th and L, just a block from All Souls. But the congregations appeared to have very little to do with each other. The 20th century brought new visibility to Unitarianism in Washington as the nation elected a Unitarian as president. William Howard Taft, was a committed Unitarian in his hometown of Cincinnati. When he came to Washington to assume the presidency, he became an active member of All Souls Church. During the election campaign, he had been attacked by agents of his opponent, William Jennings Bryan, because his church did not have a creed expressing belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ. President Theodore Roosevelt, who had picked Taft to succeed him, sprang to Taft's defense, attending First Unitarian Church with the nominee. Taft is pictured here. Uh, the person on the far left is Charles Eliot, president of Harvard University. They're pictured at the beginning of a fundraising campaign for the American Unitarian Association. Taft was a, was a Republican, as were most Unitarians of that time. Unitarians were different then, but so were Republicans. Not sure how well you can see this, but this is one of my favorite photos of the book. It shows what I think is the, the board of All Souls Church at the site of its new building at uh, 16th and Harvard in 1922. Standing in the cab of the steam shovel is the congregation's minister, Ulysses G.B. Pierce. Um, they must have represented forward-looking technology at that time for them to, to pose so proudly in front of a steam shovel. And that's the finished church uh, upon, recent, upon completion. When they moved into this building, the congregation at All Souls made a commitment to the surrounding community, seeking to be a place where activities served residents of that area as well as the congregation. A Washington Post article noted what it called the unique activities of the congregation. There were moving pictures on Saturday nights and foreign, lang foreign language talking films on Sunday nights. An amateur theater group presented plays, and community groups used the fellowship hall regularly. The Police Boys Club used the facility, and later during World War II, the church became Saturday night sleeping quarters for servicemen visiting Washington. The Universalists also had dreams of a new church building. This is a rainy day in April 1929, when members of the congregation gathered for the cornerstone laying ceremony to begin construction of the Universalist National Memorial Church, 
Way back in 1866, a proposal had been made at the Universalist General Convention that a church be established in Washington that would be both a local parish and a national church, a cathedral church for all Universalists. That idea was tabled and revisited occasionally for the next 56 years. Then the go-ahead was finally given to create the Universalist National Memorial Church. The photograph shows the building under construction and the headquarters of the Scottish Free Right uh, Scottish Rite of Freemasonry in the background, which still stands together, categorical to the Universalist Church. And the finished structure. The tower of the church was dedicated to ideals of international understanding and world peace. It is said to be the first monument to world peace in Washington. In 1943, A. Paul Davies was called to be minister of All Souls Church which ushered in a new era for Washington Unitarianism. A. Paul Davies grew up in England of Welsh parents. He went into the Methodist ministry, but felt confined by Methodism in England, so he came to the United States in search of greater religious freedom. Here he encountered Unitarianism and became convinced that this is where he truly belonged. Unitarianism in the 1930s had stalled, unsure of itself and unsure of its future. Davies was among the young Unitarian ministers of the time who sought to define a new course. He advocated a faith characterized by a rationalist worldview, humanistic values, involvement in social justice concerns, and the evolution toward a universal world faith. When Davies arrived in Washington, he encountered a city where racism was deeply embedded. There is an often told episode involving the Metropolitan Police Boys Club, which had met at All Souls without charge since 1937. By the early 1950s, there were more than 1,900 members, with more than 400 participating in activities every day. But the Metropolitan Police Boys Club was open to whites only. After the 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation, the church approached the police about integrating the boys club. They refused, instead choosing to leave the church. In response, the church formed a new boys club, the Columbia Heights Boys Club, that was open to all boys. A few years later, girls also were invited, so it truly became open to all. This is a photograph of a community school vacation school, co-sponsored by the Friends Meeting of Washington and All Souls Church. This photo dates back to 1947, when most of Washington was segregated. This summer vacation school offered one of the few exceptions. In the 1950s, Washington was ripe for Unitarian growth into the suburbs. All Souls was filled to overflowing, Religious liberalism was appealing to a segment of the population that sought a faith that spoke to a new age. The baby boom produced an unprecedented demand for children's religious education, and the rush to the suburbs brought the desire for liberal congregations that would be close by. Here we have A. Paul Davies speaking at the groundbreaking ceremony for the new Cedar Lane Unitarian Church in Bethesda. For its first 125 years, Unitarianism in the Washington area was represented by only one church, All Souls. Now extension efforts were established in the suburbs ringing Washington, 
In this photograph, representatives from eight Unitarian congregations founded with help from all souls meet together. The congregations include College Park, which is now Paint Branch, Davies Memorial, Montgomery, which is now Cedar Lane, Rockville, Arlington, Fairfax, and Mount Vernon. All of these uh, congregations that were founded by All Souls and many others that came after built facilities during this era. The buildings they constructed made statements about the values they affirmed. These suburban Washington Unitarian churches sought to create facilities that honored the simplicity of the Unitarian architectural tradition, an openness to diversity, the love of nature and the natural environment, and a functionality that enabled churches to sponsor a variety of activities. This is River Road Unitarian Church in Bethesda under construction, and that's the sanctuary of the newly completed River Road Church. This building was named by the American Institute of Architects as one of the 10 best buildings of the year. That's Cedar Lane soon after it was constructed. Arlington, Virginia. Paint Branch in Adelphi, Maryland. Fairfax, Virginia. And Rockville, Maryland. In 1961, the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church of America merged to become the Unitarian Universalist Association. The new UUA was galvanized by the civil rights movement. Even though Unitarians and Universalists had separate histories, they shared values of affirming human rights, equal justice, equal opportunity. In 1963, almost 1,000 Unitarian Universalists came together to participate in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Here they gathered in front of All Souls before boarding buses for the Washington Mall, where they heard Martin Luther King Jr. give his I Have a Dream speech. In 1959, James Reeb was named assistant minister at All Souls Church, where he became deeply involved in community issues. In 1965, he went to Alabama to join the March on Selma in response to a call to clergy from Martin Luther King Jr. In Selma, Reeb and two other Unitarian Universalist ministers were attacked and beaten. Reeb died from his injuries. President Lyndon B. Johnson, then preparing the Voting Rights Act, Voting Rights Act was moved by the tragedy. Public sympathy for this clergyman who sacrificed his life was an important factor in convincing Congress to pass voting rights legislation. And as has been often noted, this voting rights legislation made the election of Barack Obama possible. Without that law, it would not have occurred. Martin Luther King Jr. gave the eulogy at the memorial service for James Reeb in Selma. King said, Reeb's only crime was that he dared live his faith. In 1968, All Souls Church called David Eaton to be senior minister, the first African-American to serve as senior minister to a large UU congregation. Here he's shown, you probably can't see it, but in the back of him is a, a bust of A. Paul Davies. With David Eaton as minister, All Souls became a center of activism, and new congregations throughout the Washington area participated in efforts to create a society of justice and compassion. 
With the strong social witness of the congregation and with David Eaton as minister, All Souls approached a 50-50 balance of white and African-American membership, the first in the UUA to reach that level. However, most of these suburban congregations remain predominantly white. A. Paul Davies dreamed of a coalition of religious liberals, joining to affirm its core values of religious freedom, social action, and a reasoned approach to faith. Today, that dream is closer to being realized, but perhaps in forms different from how Davies could have imagined. This is an earlier photo of the Jubilee Singers from All Souls. The Universalist National Memorial Church at the other end of 16th Street has become a center for those whose faith is best expressed as liberal Christianity. Universalists affirm that God's essential nature is love. This photograph is from a service shared by the Universalist National Memorial Church and the UU Church of Silver Spring, which was founded by Universalists. You recognize this one. (laughs) As I said, I spent time up in your archives and found some really nice photos to put into the book. Like this one of a children's performance that's uh, gathered right under your affirmation. This photograph dates to 1966 and the construction of this building. As I understand it, part of the process of picking this site was to be sure that the neighborhood in which it was located would be a place in which people of all races would be welcome, which even in the 60s in Washington was not taken for granted. The commitment to being an equal opportunity employer is displayed prominently in the sign. Social activism has been important in this congregation as it has been throughout the UUA. This is a photograph from the Million Million Moms March in the year 2000, which sought more effective gun control. This is also from from this congregation. uh, Apparently it's an old photo. Um, We're not sure what the date is, but it goes back a ways. Um, If you can't read it, it's it's a girl who's carrying around a little a sign which says, listen to each other. Uh, I showed the uh, photograph to our director of religious education last week and said, you know, we ought to do something like that. So it's nice to have this kind of cross-pollination of ideas. This is a photograph in which UUs gather in front of all souls before participating in the March for Women's Lives in 2004. And it was reminiscent of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The dynamic between spiritual values and public witness has helped define religious liberalism, whatever the institutional expression might be. This photograph is also from the March for Women's Lives in 2004. At the center of of religious liberalism is the congregation, those who freely choose to form a religious community grounded in ideals of human worth and dignity, the free search for religious truth, and a spirituality that unites people of different heritages and beliefs. And this is a photo of the current minister of all souls, Rob Hardy's, welcoming a child into the congregation, an ancient ritual. My final photograph here was taken in the 1960s, and it features Muriel Davies, the widow of A. Powell Davies, 
welcoming a child to River Road Unitarian Church. It's an expression of welcome, which I think helps define who we are and who we strive to be. The liberal religious tradition continues to be a vital presence in the Washington area as new generations step up to assume their role in this continuing story. The musical response is a piece that by sheer coincidence was performed at the church I served, Davies Memorial, just two weeks ago. Um, I'm currently at Davies in the midst of a series addressing the varieties of belief found in Unitarian Universalism. This piece gives voice to two of those options. <laughs> 